to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be continuing our discussions about the midterms here in the United States. Also going to be uh, uh, discussing the Ukraine war from an African perspective. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, the world's Western leaders insisted upon foisting the U.S. propped up puppet in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, onto the United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties, or COP27, being held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Zelensky brashly said, quote, one more time. Restoration of territorial integrity, respect for the U.N. Charter, compensation for all material losses caused by the war, punishment for every war criminal, and guarantees that this does not happen again. Those are completely understandable conditions, his conditions for uh, negotiating with Russia. Well, he sure can talk big and bad when his handler is the U.S. government with the largest military in the world. But the hypocrisy of the statement is still galling since it was the dismissal of Russia's concerns for its territorial integrity in the face of continued U.S.-NATO aggression in countries along its border and eight years of unaddressed war crimes against ethnic Russians in Ukraine by the fascist-infused Kiev army since 2014. The State Department, I, I mean Zelensky, has a lot of nerve demanding something that they wantonly and disastrously violated. For Russia's part, Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenko said, quote, We've always made clear our readiness for such talks. From our side, there are no preliminary conditions whatsoever, except the main condition for Ukraine to show goodwill, which they have not been doing up to this point, being the willing vessel of the warmongering U.S. government in its campaign of destruction against Russia. Jake Sullivan, I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky, demands that the regions that voted to rejoin the Russian Federation be returned to control of Ukraine as a condition for any peace deal, including Crimea and parts of the eastern Donbass areas. So much for Joe Biden. I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky honoring the Democratic referendum votes that the people in those regions held to decide that they no longer wanted to be part of Ukraine. Their territorial integrity and their right to self-determination are also irrelevant to what Washington, I mean Ukraine, wants. The only reason the Pentagon, I mean Zelensky, made this offer publicly is because it's getting cold in Europe, y'all. It's going to freeze without Russia's oil, and Biden had to smooth over some ruffled feathers that this unintended consequence of this proxy war is having on the people in those U.S.-allied countries. It isn't going to work, though, because Russia is not going to cede or return territory back to the people who waged civil war on them for eight years. This whole thing was theater to save political face for the Biden administration. This will continue to be a very expensive pie in the face of American foreign policy and catastrophic for the rest of the world. 
And the fact that this theater was conducted at the COP27 conference shows how little the leaders of this government and that of Ukraine care for how this fool's errand will exacerbate the climate crisis that the rest of the world is trying desperately to stem. Simply put, war is better business than stopping climate catastrophe and certainly better business than peace. On the domestic front, D-Day is finally here, or doomsday for Democrats, if you will. I'm convinced that the Democrats will not be able to hold on to their majority in the House or the Senate after today's elections, but I am open to being wrong. What I do know is that it wasn't a good look when, after losing the White House in 2016 because of the Pied Piper strategy that colluded with the media to elevate the worst three Republican candidates running against Hillary Clinton, thus thrusting the bombastic game show host and real estate grifter Donald Trump to the front of the pack and into the living rooms of voters every day, the Democratic Party has once again embarked on a strategy to elevate the worst of the Republican candidates running in midterm elections. Democrat-aligned groups spent more than $53 million backing MAGA Republican candidates under the assumption that they would be easier to defeat in the general election in nine state primaries this year. Some Democrats explain their actions by saying they were simply getting a jump on attacking Republican candidates for the general election, which is dumb to me because what part of attacking your political opponent includes giving money to their campaigns? And others admit they were trying to ensure weaker candidates would be elevated for the midterm elections. But those midterm races have ended up being much more competitive than Democrats or anybody expected. And it would be foolish not to conclude that Pied Piper 2 is just as ridiculous and disastrous a strategy for the Democrats as Pied Piper 1 was. Here's a thought. Maybe the Democrats should finally do what Hillary Rosen, Democratic strategist, admitted publicly that they didn't do. Rosen said on CNN's State of the Union this past Sunday that Democrats are going to have a bad night on Election Day because the party failed to listen to the most urgent needs of voters. She said, I'm a loyal Democrat, but I am not happy. We did not listen to voters in this election, and I think we're going to have a bad night. When voters tell you over and over and over again that they care mostly about the economy, listen to them. Stop talking about democracy being at stake, she said. Democracy is at stake because people are fighting so much about what elections mean. For all the efforts the Democrats have made to not listen to and to not do what the people have repeatedly told them we want and need— I'd actually be surprised if that prediction doesn't come true. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points and you. I listen to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back 
to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Anthony Rogers-Wright, Director of Environmental Justice with New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me as always. Good to hear from you. Good to uh, speak to you. Absolutely. And uh, Anthony, you're on the ground there in Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt, <clears throat> attending the uh, COP27 uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, convention on climate change. The, the full name is the 27th iteration of the Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which uh, began this weekend. And reportedly, this uh, event uh, includes the participation of over 45,000 people from 196 countries, including 120 heads of state. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what are some of the main issues that are set to be discussed at tw- at, at the COP27? I know the issue of uh, loss and damage uh, uh, was something that was being reported and conversations about how countries should be compensated for how they've been impacted by uh, uh, climate change. But I I mean, uh, how is it looking from your perspective, Anthony, and what do you see as the top priorities of the convention? Yeah, so I coined a uh, new phrase called the hypocrisy. And the reason why I say that is because, um, you know, um, prior to this conference um, convention, the United Nations, I mean, every year the United Nations releases their annual report and they get more and more dire. I, I would have to say um, without, uh, it, it would be hard to refute that this is the most dire report that came out. And it basically said that if we have eight years to reduce global emissions by um, roughly 43%. At the current pace we're on, we're not even going to get to a fourth of that. And therefore, we're looking at um, a, a, a global warming event that will um, breach, uh, a global warming that will breach the 1.5 degree um, Celsius threshold, um, at which point, you know, we're going to see more powerful storms, more powerful droughts, and all of the um, social implications that come with that, including uh, forced migration, loss of biodiversity, and, and other uh, breakdowns of, of social, economic, and, um, and environmental systems that are necessary to sustain life. Now, what people um, um, from so-called developing nations are coming here, here in the continent, or the cradle of civilization, and, and one of the uh, uh, great nations um, and civilizations of our time here in Egypt is that the, develop, the so-called developed nations have to pony up. Those who are most responsible for this crisis, and that would be the um, 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 European Union and, of course, the United States of America, need to um, invest into a fund that will help developing nations, previously colonized nations, or some would say still colonized, depending on your mindset, um, to adapt and adjust um, to, to the climate crisis. Now, at the same time, brother, that this is happening, just two weeks ago, um, heads of state from Germany, and I believe also from um, and, and representatives from the United Kingdom, were flocking to um, um, nations on the continent, asking them to up production of frat gas to help bail them out of their war, um, 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 the, the, the uh, war with Ukraine, uh, rather with Russia, um, over Ukraine. And, 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 and so you can see the hypocrisy there. On the one hand, 
you know, these nations have extracted so much, you know, from these nations, which have led to massive emissions. Now coming to these nations with, with hands out saying, please help us to navigate a war that you have nothing to do with that will lead to more emissions that will disproportionately impact your people. So, um, and, and then of course, the last thing that I'll say, because um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that um, I'm just, I'm standing adjacent to a massive human rights rally. We do have a political prisoner here in Egypt who is on a massive hunger strike. He has also stopped drinking water. His sister is speaking right now. And if, he, if this hunger strike does not end soon, it is very, very possible that he will lose his life during this conference. So what we're seeing is a, is a collision of, 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 of the, the massive hypocrisy of global capitalism and market-based solutions and then coming here and trying to dictate to um, developing nations who, who don't admit it much. And some, like the, uh, and I, I said this last time we spoke, Brother Sean, like the Republic of Nicaragua per capita are utilizing more renewable energy than the so-called developed nations. So this is really about loss and damage and about um, who is going to invest and who should be investing in ensuring that this entire planet reduces its um, um, uh, so-called carbon footprint, its reliance on, on fossil fuels, and therefore um, 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 a, a, a market that is based on extraction and hypercapitalism. And, you know, Anthony, part of the reason uh, this loss and damage uh, aspect of the conference is so controversial is obviously because the issue uh, that a lot of developed nations, developed nations, uh, don't want to address is the fact that they are actually responsible for the climate crisis that we are facing. So how are uh, these countries, the U.S., European countries, uh, responding specifically to loss and damage claims coming from countries uh, that do not contribute uh, it, it, not even 5% to the carbon footprint or, you know, pollution, but uh, sustain and already have sustained so much of the damage from climate catastrophe. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I saw the, um, um, his excellence, the uh, president of the uh, Republic of um, um, Zimbabwe speak today, and he, he just flat out called out the United States and, and the European Union. He, he called for, like, for instance, an end to sanctions, which of course, as we know, are acts of war, and he called for um, um, these nations to, as I said earlier, pony up. Um, president Biden will be arriving to this conference um, on Friday with a pledge for a paltry $11 billion. That, that's not going to cover it, Chris. So, Jackie, that's not even close to what needs to be invested. And then what we also see is the usual European and um, United States um, of America, European nations of the United States of America, trying to perambulate the discussion and blame um, China for being right now, yes, um, overall, the world's uh, biggest emitter. But per capita, the United States is still um, emitting twice as much as the average um, um, Chinese citizen. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of gamemanship, as always. We've seen it before in, in previous COPs um, of trying to um, figure out innovative ways of using the market. Um, um, the uh, climate envoy, the climate czar, some people call him to Joe Biden, was just here today with Michael Bloomberg proposing yet again a global market-based solution that would allow polluting um, um, countries to offset their, their emissions through um, a, a, a carbon uh, pricing and carbon trading scheme that is simply not going to do the trick because what we need to do is reduce emissions at source and we need to vastly uptick the amount of uh, renewable energy uh, sources 
you know, globally. So, you know, it, it's the same thing. It's, it's not accepting the responsibility, trying to point the finger at um, emerging nations like the People's Republic of China and um, the Republic of India and not taking on that responsibility since Jackie, as we've seen so much. And one more thing that I'll say, and I'm, I'm sure you were going to bring this up, so I'm sorry if I'm, I'm jumping the gun a bit, is we've heard nothing about um, the United States military, which, of course, is the biggest emitter, a single emitter of any corporation, any nation um, on the planet. And and how we have to vastly reduce these uh, military theaters and adventures right here in Africa um, in the form of Africa. Yeah, and I'm glad you raise um, the U.S. military, uh, Anthony, because that brings us to a conversation about the direct connection between climate change and U.S. imperialism and how any real uh, critical approach to climate change will have to seriously consider justice on a number of levels, whether we're talking about imperialism, whether we're talking about uh, racism, uh, they're just uh, so many many a sort of uh, a deep and abiding systemic issues that are uh, uh, exacerbated by uh, the climate question. And of course, U.S. imperialism and never ending war is a scourge uh, on humanity that is compounded by uh, uh, climate change, which is an existential threat to uh, humanity as we know it. And so, I mean, how do you sort of see uh, that aspect of it, of basically viewing a climate change as part and parcel of a broader anti-imperialist struggle. It, it, is, it is absolutely impossible. One of the better panels um, to, to, to speak about that without speaking about um, U.S. Um, intervention and militarism. There is an amazing panel today at the Climate Justice Panel with um, African, led by um, African women, um, African feminists, who basically said that you, you cannot even begin to talk about how we're going to reduce emissions without um, talking about how we're going to reduce um, imperialism immediately and militarism immediately. And they specifically um, cited Africa. So that's, again, why I you know, point that uh, phrase, but it's prophecy, because we're not talking about the root causes. These uh, sisters also uh, spoke to the fact of, like, you know, the, the solutions that are being uh, uh, posited by these uh, so-called developed nations um, are all still in a capitalist, patriarchal, colonial mindset. And that's just simply not going to do the trick. So we're not having the deep conversations, you know, um, globally. I, I mean, it, it was really um, disheartening, for instance, to see. But we're here in Africa, Brother Sean. We're here in Africa, yet the room was like half filled when African leaders on their own continent were, were coming to speak. But when we see uh, Joe Biden on Friday, that room is going to be packed. And I can assure you that the president is not going to mention militarism once. I, I would be willing to bet um, 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 my, my paycheck this week that he's not going to say one word about it. So, again... Um, I, I, I don't I feel very, very confident that I'm um, at the conclusion of this conference. We're going to be any closer to really seriously addressing um, um, this climate crisis, which, of course, is really disproportionately um, impacting um, uh, people here on the continent. I mean, one heartbreaking story that I uh, heard from one of the African sisters was that how many mothers, because they cannot feed all their children, are basically selling their daughters off in their early marriage so that they can get a dowry and let um, amounts to have to feed. And then, you know, their, their daughters being forced into a, a, a general mutilation. And of course, just not being able to have the self-determination that every single person on this planet um, has an inalienable right to. So what we're also what we're also not addressing are sort of like, you know, the primary effects, the secondary effects, and the tertiary effects of this crisis at the hands of developed nations and their continued thirst for the extraction of resources 
and using their military forces to guard those resources, very similar to what we saw in Iraq um, in, in the early 2000s. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you know, human rights struggles that are going on uh, there right now. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how uh, the climate issue does dovetail with the, you know, growing human rights issues. Uh, and, and as you pointed out, the, the growing kind of domestic and social issues that people in developing countries who, again, do not contribute uh, largely to uh, the climate issue at all, but suffer uh, so many different ramifications from climate uh, catastrophe, climate change, that, you know, it, this this is not for uh, them. This is not an if these things will happen, Anthony. It's a these things are happening right now and something needs to be done. No, that, that's right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, at, at the heart of it, Sister Jackie, is that we are still approaching um, the solutions to this crisis from an Anglo-centric lens and through a, 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 a paradigm of Anglo-conformity. And so, in other words, the people who cause this crisis are automatically the people who are going to come up with the solutions. That, that, that needs to be rejected, okay, because, like, you're, you're talking about human rights abuses, which human rights abuses are rooted in white supremacy. They're rooted in colonization, and they're rooted in patriarchy. These are the root causes um, of the climate crisis. And, um, you know, from the standpoint of, like, when you hear people on the far right talking about so-called uh, uh, border security, you know, they're, they're also not talking about their role, you know, what, what the United States has done in imperialism. Um, we, we see, for instance, a, a planned invasion of the Revolutionary Republic of Haiti. We already know what the United States has done in um, Central and and, and um, um, South America, okay, the militarism, um, the, the, the drought, the floods, just the inability to um, have a sustainable life, forcing people to leave their, their home country and come to anywhere where they can get a semblance of humanity, okay, J- just a semblance. So, um, the, the, as you said, dovetail these are intrinsically linked and inexorably linked, and until we have those full conversations, we're not really having a, a, a serious conversation, and we're not having a genuine conversation. What we're doing is a lot of uh, uh, bloviating and, 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 and uh, uh, pontificating over nothing, okay? For instance, we did see, um, um, you know, uh, the young sister, Greta Thunberg, for that reason, um, she, she, um, she's not coming this year. She is boycotting the cop this year because she is sick of the greenwashing, she is sick of the hypocrisy, and she is sick of the, the hyper-capitalism trying to be used to um, address and, and ameliorate a crisis that, of course, is caused by capitalism. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the war in Ukraine from an African perspective. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Fred Mumembe, president of the Socialist Party of Zambia. Dr. Mumembe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. Absolutely. And doctor, of course, we've been following on the show very closely the uh, rapidly escalating war in Ukraine, this uh, a proxy war between uh, U.S. NATO forces and Russia. And uh, we've been keeping a close eye on the international response to this war as, you know, the U.S. and uh, the West, its allies and junior partners, you know, try to present this image as if, you know, uh, uh, the whole international community is sort of uh, siding with them uh, in condemnation of uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of this year. But I feel like once uh, uh, you take a closer look at uh, how some of these opinions and perspectives from different governments are really playing out, I think the, the, the picture is a bit more complicated. Now, back in March at, at the United Nations, there was a debate over a, revolu- a resolution fundamentally to uh, condemn uh, uh, Moscow for its uh, invasion of Ukraine. And within that vote, 35 countries abstained from it, including 17 member states of the African Union. And there have also been leaders like uh, Cyril Ramaphosa of uh, South Africa that have uh, not necessarily uh, jumped on the Western uh, bandwagon with this as well. And so we, we wanted to bring you on to sort of uh, uh, discuss this because from your perspective, uh, obviously you're there in Zambia, a country in uh, uh, Southern Africa, and I'm just wondering why you think we've seen uh, these kinds of responses uh, uh, from some of these different African governments towards uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, and what do you think it says about the reality of uh, geopolitics right now? First, let me say it is very important to understand that no war is good. It is impossible not to be moved by the outrageousness of warfare. The gruesome fears of civilians who are trapped between choices that are not their own. But wars make very complicated historical processes that appear to be simple. The war in Ukraine is not merely about NATO or about ethnicity. It is about many things. Every war must end at some point, and the diplomas must restart, must come in. Africa and the Russian people share a history of struggle. When the African people were fighting for their independence, for their liberation, those who are condemning Russia today were not with them. They were on the other side. They never took our side. Not that our side was wrong. Our side was right but they never took our side. They took the side of the colonialists. They took the side of the side of apartheid. They took the side of racist superiority against the forces of liberation, African liberation. We will never forget that. They want us to forget that, but it's not easy to forget that because it's not very long ago. Zimbabwe only became independent in 1980. Namibia only became independent in, 19, in, in, in 1990, this is not very long ago in terms of historical processes. We know who st- 
stood with the apartheid regime in South Africa. We know who stood with the, the racist regime in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. We knew who sided with the colonialists in Angola, in Mozambique, in Cape Verde. We know all these things. So the African people have a sense of history as well. It's not possible for Africans to condemn Russia, given where we are coming from together. And the Russian war is a complicated process. Let's not be simplistic about it. Let's understand where this process is coming from. Since 1990, there has been an attempt to expand the NATO forces in Eastern Europe, up to Russia. There was some cooperation, initially even from Russia itself, under Boris Yeltsin. There was some engagement, but all that has changed. And it is important to understand that long history. And the Africans understand that. We are able to analyze things for ourselves. We are able to see things for ourselves. We are able to come to our own conclusions. And also we understand the decisions and actions of our enemies and also the decisions and actions of our friends. We are even able to understand the mistakes of our friends and separate them or single them out to identify them from the actions and decisions of our enemies. We know who our friends are. The Russian people have stood on our side. Russia has never had colonies in Africa. That must be understood. Despite helping to liberate us, Russia has never taken control of any African country. Russia has never colonized any country that they helped to liberate. Russia has not exploited an African country. We do not know of any country that in Africa that can claim it was a colony of Russia. It has been exploited and humiliated by Russia. This history is very clear to us. And it's not easy for us to dissuade by propaganda against Russia. We don't want the war in Ukraine to continue as Africans. War is bad. War is not good for the poor. War is not good for the workers. War in itself is a crime. War produces crimes. Peace must always be a priority. We Africans want the war in Ukraine to end. But that war won't end without taking into account the security concerns of Russia and indeed the security concerns of Ukraine itself and even the security concerns of Europe itself. It shouldn't be just the security of one section or one region or one country. The security of all must be considered. The security of Ukraine must be considered. The security of Russia must be considered. And indeed, the security of Europe. Emphasizing on just one side of the equation, it won't work. You cannot have security for Europe. You cannot have security for Ukraine without taking into account the security concerns of Russia. Similarly, you cannot have the security concerns of Russia addressed without taking into account the security concerns of Ukraine, the security concerns of Europe. We all need our security. As we pursue our own security interests, we also must take into account the security concerns of others. This is what is lacking in the issue of Ukraine. Russia has legitimate security concerns. And it, it, they just didn't walk into Ukraine. From 2004, they have been actively pursuing these issues. But instead of addressing them, the opposite has been ha happening. NATO has been expanding its lines. NATO has been trying to consolidate its positions in Eastern Europe up to the Russian border. What do you expect Russia to do? Sit idle and watch? 
insecurity concerns not being addressed, insecurity being violated, insecurity being threatened, would the USA or would Europe accept that situation? Who in the world would accept that to happen? You know, what you just said, that that brief encapsulation of the history uh, of solidarity, really, that the Russian people and that the Russian government has had with the African liberation struggles uh, over the decades is so important, I think, to uh, this conversation, because I think in some ways we in the United States, uh, even though we who are are Pan-Africanists understand and know a little bit of that history, most people do not. So most people uh, don't understand and don't know. Uh, they're ignorant of uh, the, the struggle against colonialism on the African continent. So they're ignorant of the abuses and they're ignorant of their relationship with Russia and the continent. And in that context, do you think that the it's that ignorance of this relationship that you just explained that makes it difficult for us in the United States to understand why African nations uh, refuse to condemn Russia and also why we have a difficult time uh, pulling back from literally cheering this war to continue in order to, quote unquote, support Ukraine, as our government tells us, without having any consideration for the lives of the people who are caught in the middle of this war, as you said, who do, who did not choose it and who did not ask for it, most of whom are working class and poor people on the continent of Africa. Sometimes it's not in the, only the issue of ignorance. Sometimes there's the issue of arrogance and probably sometimes even racist attitudes. What is good for the goose is good for the gander. What's good for America is also good for others. America would not tolerate what it wants Russia to tolerate on its borders. If Russia was to move into Mexico today or into Canada and do what the Americans and the Europeans are trying to do in Ukraine, I don't think they would tolerate that. We have the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Cuba is 90 miles away from Florida. But when the Soviet Union placed missiles there, there was a big crisis, which had to be resolved amicably. Why should Russia feel secure with Ukraine becoming a NATO member and placing missiles on its border? These are issues that need to be guaranteed. What we need is adherence to the Minsk agreements. What is needed is security guarantees for Russia and Ukraine, which would also require Europe to develop an independent relationship with Russia. That is not shaped by U.S. interests. There will also be need to, to have a reversal of Ukraine's ultranationalist laws and a return to a much more plural national, com, com, uh, national Compact. If substance negotiations and agreements regarding these essential matters do not materialize, it is likely that the dangerous weapons will face each other across the divide, and additional countries may be drawn into this conflict with the potential to spiral out of control. We don't want this conflict to get out of control. There is a need for negotiations to end this war. And the negotiations, in our view, center around the three principal issues. The return to the Minsk agreements, 
security guarantees for Russia and Ukraine, reversal of ultranationalist laws. This is not demanding too much. Of course, these are not simple issues, but they are issues that need to be addressed. For sure. And, you know, last question, uh, Dr. Mamembe, is, you know, we're in a, a time from the standpoint of uh, U.S. imperialism as it sees itself engaging in great power conflict, both with Russia and China. And uh, the African continent seems like uh, uh, it's sort of poised to become a, a real uh, a battlefield for uh, uh, this new Cold War. And so uh, for the African continent, for all of its uh, 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 linguistic and uh, uh, cultural and ethnic and uh, geographic diversity. How do you see sort of uh, the role of the continent in the coming period as we uh, continue to see uh, uh, efforts to, you know, bring about a, a world order that isn't uh, controlled from Washington? For all our diversity, for all the differences that are among us, one thing that we all need is peace. We need peace to develop. We need peace to move our people out of poverty. We don't want to be drawn in a, in a cold war or any other war. We don't want war. We have had enough. We have been humiliated for over 600 years. We were hunted as slaves, traded as slaves. We were colonized. We moved from classical colonialism to neocolonialism. All these are humiliating things. We have had enough of our torture. We have, been, we have had enough crucifixion. It's time for Africa also to have its resurrection. And that resurrection cannot come under a cold war. That's why our position is of non-alignment. We have the right to pursue our own interests, while others also have the right to pursue their own interests. But one thing that is in common is we need a peaceful world. All our people need a peaceful world. The Americans need to live in peace. The Europeans need to believe in peace. The Africans need peace. The Russians need peace. All need peace. Everything that threatens peace threatens all of us. It threatens our peaceful existence here. And it also threatens our progress. War is destructive. It destroys wealth. It destroys production. It increases poverty. It increases despair. It brings suffering. It brings pain. We don't need this. We have had enough. We want to develop and develop in peace. And we don't want to be shackled to wars that are not ours. These are not wars that are ours or benefit us. But we are there to try and offer solutions because Every war, no matter how small it is, it has got ripple effects. It affects not only the primary people involved in it, but there are also secondary implications. We don't want war. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Mamembe, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. 
to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, uh, to kick things off this week, there was an exclusive that was reported by Yahoo saying that the U.S. State Department has given intelligence agencies and law enforcement uh, agencies uh, unrestricted access to the personal data of more than 145 million Americans. Uh, What in the world is going on here? Yeah, this is something that uh, came through Yahoo News. Earlier this, uh, actually about a year ago, in December of 2021, we found that there was a uh, division within CBP, Customs and Border Protection, that was targeting journalists and uh, and others. And as part of the investigation, what we found, what has been found here, what we now know, the public now knows, is that uh, in fact, 25 different law enforcement and intelligence agencies around the country are able to just get access from the State Department uh, on people who have applied for a passport. So if you have applied for a passport recently, uh, it's not clear what the timeline is, but they have all of that data. There is a possibility that uh, the State Department has just handed over your information to a law enforcement or intelligence agency. Now, this includes, of course, stuff like your name, your address, but also birth, uh, you know, uh, birthdays, biometric data, if you've had to do a fingerprint or a facial scan for, uh, for a passport, um, social security numbers, all, all other types of personal information, if you have to put down you know, a, you know, who your family is, stuff like that. So if you're uh, trying to get, you know, if you've tried to get a passport, if you've gotten a passport, uh, then you, know, you are one of the 145 million people whose information could be shared by the State Department with other agencies across the country. And this is not what the State Department is supposed to be doing. This is not what the State Department even, you know, in its own words, exists to do, right? It should just be handing over, you know, you apply for a passport, you get a passport, things like that. Uh, No one would have expected, I think, that applying for a passport meant that your information would go into a database that uh, intelligence agencies could then get access to. But of course, in a a capitalist you know, system where surveillance is a key aspect of this system, uh, you know, unfortunately, it makes sense looking back at it. But again, not something you would expect uh, when you're, you know, when you're filling out that passport application form. Yeah. And the fact that the State Department just hands all of this information over outside of any kind of legal processes is really, I think, the sticking point for me, because, you know, if there is a criminal investigation going on where some of this information might be needed, and I mean, that's questionable enough, that's one thing. But apparently there are no legal documents, no anything. These agencies just basically asks the State Department for all of this information, and the State Department just says, okay. Yeah, exactly. You know, in, in, you know, in an ideal world, maybe they'd need a warrant, right? But right. Even then, we know that warrants, particularly FISA warrants that the intelligence community uh, agencies get, 
are you know notoriously just rubber stamped by by judges. Um, but they're not even trying to get a, a warrant in this case. They're just going and basically asking, and they're getting it handed over to them. So, so there's really the, there's been no oversight. There's been no uh, any kind of effort within the State Department to prevent this. And in fact, they say that they're not even really going to be able to identify which agencies uh, have gotten how you know uh, what number of responses uh, you know in terms of their requests. I mean, it is just completely. You know, really unbelievable to even be talking about this uh, in in a sense that they they won't even be able to say that you know the FBI got this many access to this many people, the CIA got this, the NYPD that they're not even going to be able to give us that. Yeah, and there was another issue I wanted to touch on here, Chris, about uh, Uber and how uh, people's Uber data uh, looks like it's being mined uh, to prevent uh, bridges from collapsing. Uh, what's the deal with this? <laughs> Right. So this is actually a really, really interesting story. And, and it struck me because it's one of those that at first glance, this is what big data could actually be doing, right? This is what could be useful for big data. So what's happening is uh, that there are some engineers who are saying, uh, this is actually about one guy, uh, Thomas Matarazzo, who works at the U.S. Military Academy as a structural engineer, you know, somebody who would know a little thing or two about bridges and the failing infrastructure in the United States, you know, he's saying, okay, we're going to use GPS and accelerometer data from Uber uh, in order to detect when bridges are getting close to the point of, you know, collapse or needing repair. There's, you know, these minute little movements that they can detect that we couldn't even detect, but our phones can. Well, you know, because they have these very, very sensitive, um, you know, GPS trackers and accelerometers in them. Um, and then so they want to, they're using this information to figure out when, you know, when bridges need to be repaired, which first glance, that makes total sense. But it also exposes what it is that Uber is tracking and really that many, many apps on our phones are tracking your position, your battery life acceleration, your, your GPS, uh, whether you're in low battery mode or not, you know, all of those kinds of things, you know, which way you're pointing even, not just, you know, with where you're going, but what direction you're pointing in, the angle that you're holding your phone at. All of these things are, are you know, signals that our phones can track about us and that apps can get access to. Uh, you know, and so the idea that we would use this kind of information in some sort of anonymized way, I think, is actually a great idea. But we cannot trust a company like Uber or any of them, any of the rideshare apps, any of the you know apps that we put out there to actually use our data in an ethical way, because the entire premise of these apps is to make money. And if, whether it's by the service that they provide, which, you know, for Uber, it's connecting a driver with a passenger, uh, or, you know, whether it's, you know, if it's a game, it's providing entertainment, they're also collecting data constantly. They're doing that to collect and sell the data. They're doing that to, uh, they say, improve their own service. You know, in many ways, it's just to track us more. So, in an ideal world, I would be all for a situation like this, right, where we use aggregated, anonymized data to figure out, you know, how do we prevent a bridge collapse? Because we have this awful infrastructure in this country that does not get enough attention. You know, the infrastructure bills, infrastructure week, all of that, not not nearly enough to address the, the crumbling bridges and buildings and, and all of that. 
But again, we have to consider just because it seems like it could be a good idea, which this could be. Is it really going to be effective, uh, you know, and harm free uh, under a system that takes advantage of every piece of data it gets? Yeah. And, you know, not only when we talk about uh, tech, is it sort of an issue of privacy? But, you know, as we've discussed uh, uh, tech for the people before, it it can also um, have some interplay with uh, imperialism and U.S. foreign policy. And I was looking at this piece in Protocol talking about uh, Aaron, excuse me, Eric Schmidt, who was a former CEO of Google, is uh, trying to profit from uh, basically uh, a tech, the tech front, if you will, of Washington's Cold War with China. So I was hoping you could tell us a little more about Schmidt and, and what, uh, how has he been uh, maneuvering here? Yeah, Schmidt, multi, multi-billionaire. Uh, he's an investor now. Um, he invests in a lot of uh, kind of companies that want to use you know, artificial intelligence in some way. His company is called Innovation Endeavors, and they, they invest in companies like, uh, just to pick one, Astra, which says, get your payload to space. You know, it's kind of a competitor with SpaceX in a way, in terms of, uh, you know, bringing rockets, you know, and, and, and stuff like that, satellites or whatever up to space. Um, but they also, you know, they work a lot with the with uh, defense contractors. Eric Schmidt has been really critical in this push in the United States government um, to combat the rise of China when it comes to, you know, emerging technologies like AI. He has been very outspoken uh, in the national security world and in the tech world about the idea that the U.S. has to invest more in AI and in defense uh, applications of AI in order to, you know, combat China, in order to beat China. I don't think we're, you know, I, <laughs> there's nothing to beat, right? It, it's uh, This should not be a competition, but of course the U.S. government is looking at it in that way. So then he has his own uh, investment company, again, Innovation Endeavors. And so that's, but so his whole push to say we need to invest more in this really means, you know, we need more money, <laughs> you know, in this industry. So Eric Schmidt himself then can make more money back when he gets his returns from the companies he invests in. In the meantime, while he's trying to just get, make himself more billions of dollars, he's really pushing this idea along with people like Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, uh, that you know we need to be combating China at, you know, at every, every end. And it's part of this entire new Cold War that we're seeing the U.S. government wage on China that has been going on for quite some time, uh, you know, Trump administration, you know, ha- you know, certainly uh, ramped it up. But the Biden administration has gone even farther. It's a bipartisan, uh, you know, effort to contain China. And I think it's certainly going to fail. But while it fails, it's going to make the rest of us, not just in the U.S. and in China, but around the world, suffer as more militarization uh, of, uh, of AI uh, is happening. Yeah, because, you know, certainly what is going on is that the people like Schmidt who are (laughs) giving this advice to the Pentagon about, you know, how to prioritize or the fact that they do need to prioritize AI to compete with China uh, aren't doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. They're not doing it altruistically. And they're certainly not making these suggestions, Chris, uh, to uh, uh, help the U.S., uh, use technology in a way that would be beneficial to 
American society or anyone else. But I think the interesting thing about this story, one of the most interesting things is that these people, the, the Schmitz of the world and the people that he's working with, are actually very nebulous in the kind of things they are telling the government that they should do. Like someone said that, uh, you know, none of them advocate for anything in particular, let alone telling the DOD you should use this cloud or that algorithm or that thing. So this is an effort that the U.S. government, that the Pentagon is literally throwing millions of dollars at in order to compete with China leveraging the private sector, which is separate from what China does in the first place, but also not really seeming to get any clear direction on what it is they're supposed to be doing. And that, to me, is really, really interesting, but in a kind of black mirror terrifying kind of way, Chris. I mean, yeah, it is. I think that's a really good point that you make there, Jackie, with that, because you know, right now it's about really throwing, you know, throwing the spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks and trying to really capitalize on whatever actually does stick. But, you know, he's a multi-billionaire. You know, he invests in five companies and three of them fail, but two of them do it spectacularly well and get defense contracts. Then he's looking at that uh, and saying, well, I'll make my money back on all of these things. When you have that kind of money, you're able to do that kind of thing. It's something that I think most of us just will never be able to, to comprehend. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back top of the hour. It is Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call, Hibbert, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital and 
then you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thanks so much for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And Ajamu, of course, as we go to air today, uh, we're in some of the final hours of the midterm elections here in the United States, uh, uh, an event that I think will stand to have some serious ripple effects for this country in a number of ways for the foreseeable future. And so I wanted to really base our conversation today around capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy, voting, and the deepening political and social crisis here in the United States. And I was just uh, seeing uh, uh, earlier today, you may have seen something similar, Jamu, about how uh, the expenditures for this year's uh, midterm elections in the U.S. are expected to exceed $16 billion, billion with a B. And there was also this piece that was published in the Wall Street Journal where it discussed uh, how these private equity firms spent nearly $150 million uh, to different candidates and committees in the course of uh, uh, this election season. And when one just takes a step back and look at, I don't know, the uh, material conditions of uh, uh, the, the masses of people in the United States of America, I mean, it seems to me that uh, they could do a whole lot uh, with that money. And I feel like this is something that we see in just about every election cycle. I know certainly during every presidential uh, election cycle, um, new records are broken for the amount of money that is spent. And, and what do we get for that? You know what I mean? All of the all of this money, all of these resources going into these elections that are basically just kind of a tussle between different wings of the ruling class, neither one of these ruling parties meaning anything good for poor working and oppressed people, yet consistently and steadily lying to us um, that they very well might. And I was also looking at this piece I thought was interesting in The Hill entitled Black Voters Worry About Being Blamed for Potential Democratic Losses. And the reason this piece was interesting to me is because, you you know, uh, this is The Hill, obviously, and you have these very mainstream people that they're quoting saying things that sound a lot like what you might hear on uh, by any means uh, necessary. Um, for instance, uh, they quote Adrienne Shropshire, executive director 
director of Black Pack, who was talking about how black voters are uh, often neglected uh, by Democrats specifically until late uh, in the race, which gives the party just enough time to point the finger of blame at black folks if things don't go their way. Adrian should quote, it happens so close to the election that on the other side, the question becomes what happened? Did they show up? The last minute media attention on the black vote gets unfairly tied to the outcome of the election. And the Democratic strategist Christopher Huntley was also quoted saying, black people show up, black people do what we are asked to do, and quite often we do it and don't get what we've been promised. So considering all this, uh, uh, Ajamu, not only our domestic situation, but also the geopolitical situation as Washington's new Cold War against China and Russia rages on in a very uh, uh, perilous direction. I'm just wondering how you situate these midterms election amidst all of that. Well, I'm glad that we have a very uh, easy task for this afternoon. Um, so I guess we can, we can get right into it. Um, you know, that, that last point, though, I will begin there, uh, which is a very interesting situation that uh, black people find themselves in who participate uh, in, the, in the process in terms of, of uh, supporting the, the Democrat Party. That, um, as that individual uh, shared, um, that this seems to be repeated over and over again. You have the Democrats that basically abandon um, the most loyal segment of their of their base, um, uh, black folks, um, until the very end when it appears that the Democrats are going to not be very successful. Uh, and then the point they point the finger at uh, black folks because the black folks didn't just mindlessly mobilize in support of the Democrat Party, even though, as uh, that court also indicates, it's very difficult to point to anything that the Democrats have been pushing over the last couple of decades that, uh, in, a, in a meaningful way, addresses the objective needs of Black people in general and the Black working class specifically. So, you know, as, as we heard, you know, there's this uh, saying that's now become almost a cliche that if you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome, that is in fact a reflection of the definition of insanity. But it's quite clear that that is in fact what the uh, neoliberal bosses of the Democrat Party want black folks to engage in. If black folks ever get to the point where they uh, understand that there is, in fact, leverage in withholding their votes uh, to punish uh, the uh, taking for granted of their uh, objective needs, then you know, perhaps you might see a different kind of uh, configuration uh, or dispensation of power within that party. That's the first point that I'm sure we get a chance to talk, to talk about uh, uh, some more. But, you know... What we are going to see with this midterm is, in fact, going to be an important vote, uh, an important election. Um, how significant it's going to be remains to be seen. I think the 2024 would be probably more significant. Uh, we don't see uh, major changes in, in policies, regardless of the uh, balance of forces between the Congress and the White House. 
um, uh, coming out of this midterm election. It's quite clear, at least to me, that uh, there's already a bipartisan consensus uh, that um, in order to uh, address the issue of inflation, uh, that uh, there's going to be a recession. Uh, it's clear that the uh, the Federal uh, Reserve, uh, the Central Bank of the U.S. has decided that that's going to be the monetary strategy. Um, along with those monetary decisions, you have fiscal policies that are already being unleashed on the state and local levels of austerity and, to a certain degree, on the national level. So there's bipartisan ruling class agreement on that. Uh, the only other significant point that uh, uh, emerged in the latter stages of this of this run up to the midterm uh, was this issue was the issue of the uh, ongoing uh, proxy war in Ukraine and the position of some Republicans who were raising questions about this about the wisdom of of the continuation of this conflict, especially in light of the obvious uh, destabilization of the global economy that has resulted. Uh, and then on the Democrat side, sort of a, 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 a position of even more aggressive uh, justifications for the continuation of the, of the proxy war. Um, so, you know, this will be a significant uh, uh, issue uh, once uh, I predict that the uh, Republicans take the House. But beyond that, uh, um, I really don't see uh, uh, you know much much changes taking place right now, despite the, the fear mongering uh, that we see that's become a, a sort of a, a reoccurring um, um, uh, occurrence with this uh, with, with these elections. Um, and you know, I don't see again uh, much conversation among black folks. Uh, regarding what are the specific concerns and demands that they should uh, attempt to advance um, uh, as a community, as a class, uh, and what might a progressive or radical politics look like um, being advanced by uh, black folks, black workers who are the most oppressed sectors, along with Latinos of the of, of the working class. Uh, these kinds of conversations we, we rarely get a chance to get to because of all the diversions that are part of this electoral process. So, and then last, I know this is a long response, but I think that the the enormous amounts of money that have uh, uh, been spent for this and went up to this election is another obscene example of the excesses uh, that have now been in place, uh, put in place legally as a consequence of Citizens United versus um, the Federal Elections Commission uh, that allowed for uh, the ruling class to basically completely control the electoral process and that it does end up being a uh, intra-bourgeois struggle over uh, the control of uh, certain elements of the state uh, and state policies. And the electorate becomes almost just sort of... Um, uh, spectators manipulated by one faction of capital over the other uh, to uh, give its support uh, to to that uh, intra-bourgeois uh, struggle.
And, you know, Jamu, just the fact that the Democrats have already, I mean, they actually started, at least down in Georgia, uh, you know, blaming black voters uh, for whatever happens in these midterms uh, a couple of days ago. Just the fact that in the face of everything that is facing uh all people in this country, all working people in this country, all poor and oppressed people in this country, but particularly black uh, people who are dedicated Democratic voters who, despite what these folks say, will literally go out and vote for people they are not excited for because, doggone it, they just do not want to vote for Republicans because they just don't want to vote for Republicans. And it and for a lot of voters, it, it really is a sticking with the devil you know as opposed to the devil you don't know, or at least the devil who's a little bit nicer to you with his deviltry, as opposed to the one who is just flat out evil all the time. We get that is the the mindset of a lot of voters in general, but I think particularly black voters. But my question is, aside from, you know, when are many, the mass of black folks going to break away from that, that trance that they must continue to vote for the Democrats? And I know a part of the answer to that question is on us organizers to help them break out of that uh, abusive relationship. But then, you know, when I'm thinking about the amount of money that we are talking about, the Democratic Party has spent in this midterm election alone and the economic realities, uh, the economic disaster facing uh, a lot of their base, the fact that the Democrats refused to talk about economic issues when their base was telling them this is what's important to us, these economic issues. We can't pay our bills. Our student loan debt is crushing. We cannot afford health insurance. We're not getting a raise. We've been working for the same company or at the same kind of job for, you know, five years, a decade, and it's not enough money to raise a family on. The Democrats paid no attention to this, did not talk about any of this, but all they talked about was we can't let democracy be threatened by the Republicans winning this midterm election. That's all they talked about. So when we're when we're in a situation where Hillary Rosen, a major campaign strategist for the Democratic Party, said publicly on uh, CNN State of the Union that the Democrats did not listen to voters in this election. I think my question is, at what point do we really begin looking at these Black Democratic uh, strategists, the Black Democratic uh, operatives, the Black folks in the DNC, and really turning the fire, turning the heat up on them. If people are going to be committed to staying in the Democratic Party, when do we hold these people accountable for not raising more of a stink? within the Democratic Party for that party not listening to black people's needs, particularly black voters, since black voters are always the one the Democrats uh, blame before they, you know, cook something like Russiagate up, of course. Well, you know, one of the consequences of the of the changes in uh, electoral laws that allow for uh, the capitalists to flood the electoral process with, with money has been a, a marked um, diminishment, if you will, of the quality of the candidates that end up running 
Um, it has made it very difficult for um, uh, independent uh, organizations who might want to, uh, in fact, uh, contest uh, in the electoral arena to be successful, especially if they uh, embrace uh, methods uh, that are very similar to the methods of the of the two major parties. Uh, so, what we what we have is a situation in which uh, the, the structures of accountability are, are basically lacking. Uh, you, with those realities and the objective weaknesses of of, of, of radical organizations, radical social movements, uh, then there is no incentive. There is no uh, ability to to pressure uh, these neocolonial uh, leaders uh, who are who are given the task of of managing the the natives in these various urban spaces and even in rural spaces throughout. Uh, the uh, uh, the South. Uh, so, you know, the task has to be for us to uh, uh, reintroduce the concept of of, of self determination, of the need for independent uh, organizations, uh, and the need to uh, define for ourselves what our interests are and the kinds of of, of demands that we are willing to organize around in order to advance uh, our interests within. Uh, the confines and limitations of this electoral process. So the, the advancement of radical demands that uh, have a dual purpose, first to address some of the real uh, material contradictions that people face, um, and that if one can, in fact, address some of those contradictions. But secondly, um, demands that help to sharpen the contradictions that allow us to continue to advocate and organize uh, to transcend the, the status quo. So more radical uh, and clear understanding of the strategic possibilities and limitations of the electoral process. That means also very clear politics and very clear ideological positions. And so, you know, this task is a task, as you said at, at the top of your of your question, is a task of organizers. But it has to be a task in which people are able to embrace them. Uh, with, with conviction and with power, and not be concerned about the the fallout from their friends, the families, and even elements of the uh, black petty bourgeoisie. We've got to have clear radical politics and and, and center uh, the collaboration um, and the uh, antagonist interest of the neo-colonial forces uh, that uh, serve as a buffer uh, to the the, the, the ruling class. So we've, we've got to get to, but we can't get to the ruling class uh, because we have to go through this buffer class. At, at this point, I'm still somewhat covered uh, by by their by their bosses uh, and by this uh, ideological position we have that looks at black people as one mass as opposed to black people with very specific interests that need to be advanced and protected. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukman continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. Uh, Ajamu, uh, we, we've been discussing the midterms here uh, on the show, of course, and I was looking at issues like the situation in Pennsylvania where thousands of mail-in ballots um, were invalidated as the result of uh, a, a Republican lawsuit. And we see this happening in, in a couple of states as it pertains to this issue. And uh, we've been seeing images and videos of uh, people standing in line uh, basically to to recast their uh, uh, ballots that they had already submitted. And to me, this uh, feels like an indication of really what we've been talking about here on the show, which is this uh, encroaching far right uh, uh, attack on uh, basic democratic rights here uh, in the U.S. And I tend to think that uh, uh, Republicans are actually angling to go after um, the one person, one vote system as a whole. And why are they doing that? It's because they know that their program isn't actually that popular. Now, that may sound strange when we consider um, the fact of how we, like a lot of people, have been talking about, uh, 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 you know, the potential for a real far right surge um, uh, uh, here in the U.S. But I tend to think that there's a number of reasons why uh, uh, the right has been able to make so many gains in terms of uh, uh, tactics both on their part and on the part of uh, uh, the Democrat Party in uh, uh, a number of ways. And, you know, the, uh, the, the, the mainstream corporate press, I think sometimes like to play it up as if, you know, the, the, the U.S. electorate is sort of hopeless, hopelessly uh, reactionary and right wing. And that's the reason for um, uh, uh, this, this surge of the right. But I mean, I tend to think it's a little more uh, complicated than that. But what I'm really getting at is that the U.S. and its uh, bourgeois liberal democracy itself appears to be under threat, which could only deepen uh, the crisis that are already raging right now in the U.S. on a, a, a number of levels. And so I feel like there's a, a more uh, at stake here than just, you know, yeah, you know what we hear from Biden, the Democrats, these, these broad notions about how, you know, democracy is under threat and all these uh, sorts of things as if the Democrats have no part in that. But in truth, we could be looking at a, a much more sort of serious move here from some of the most reactionary elements um, in the country that, uh, to me, seem to have far deeper implications than simply uh, occupying this or that office. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. And, and um, you know, the, the Republicans have always had an interest in suppressing uh, turnout uh, because they have recognized that the, the vast majority of the people in, in the United States of America are people who, because of their objective class position, will tend to... Uh, uh, gravitate somewhat toward the some of the messages of the Dem Democrat Party. That is before uh, the Republicans began to uh, uh, experiment uh, with uh, sort of uh, fascistic uh, messages uh, uh, targeting uh, workers and and 
uh, identifying the, the global elite as the, the main uh, enemies of 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 the uh, of the nation. Um, but you know what we are saying is that you know this these are some of the moves that they made um, by the Republicans, and they some of those moves that uh, are being made. Of course, you're getting a lot of attention. Uh, but we have to also, as we look at this objectively, uh, to you know, to 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 contextualize it uh, as, in fact, uh, a bipartisan um, uh, undermining of the uh, liberal democratic uh, processes, uh, uh, the procedural democratic processes uh, in this country. Um, and, and to do that, though, in such a way that we don't inadvertently provide uh, more uh, legitimacy to this process than what it actually deserves. We have to re- remind ourselves and remind others as we look at these processes that, uh, you know, this is a very limited uh, democratic, uh, so-called democratic process. In fact, we would uh, we will argue that uh, it is not a democratic process at all. And in fact, one of the major demands that have to be made by the people is to, in fact, uh, to have some kind of real democratic process that doesn't include uh, a monopoly, a monopoly of, of control by two, uh, two capitalist parties. We remind people, of, for example, that when you look at some of the legal moves being made by the Republicans, that the Democrats have engaged in several kinds of activities to limit uh, the Democratic participation. We, we remember in 2020 that in that same uh, state of Pennsylvania, uh, the Democrats uh, went to court to uh, have the Green Party uh, presidential nominee jettisoned from the ballot. Uh, so, you know, the, the Republicans engaged in voter suppression on the individual level. The Democrats engage in voter suppression, and party suppression uh, also. So, you know, these are some of the contradictions of this, this, this deepening crisis of the system and the, the, the more uh, sharp and antagonistic methods that are being employed by these various sectors uh, of capital. But, you know, we got to be very, very careful, uh, Sean, I think, in terms of, 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 uh, of suggesting, or not suggesting, but implying that this is coming from one side uh, than the other. And you, I think you very rightly reminded us that we have to look at, at, at the, the general crisis uh, that this system is facing uh, and be quite clear as from the point of view of workers, of, of African workers, of colonized people, that uh, these kinds of contradictions will continue. They're going to sharpen uh, and the... the, 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 the uh, the system itself will continue to uh, to disintegrate, um, and that uh, we are only at the very beginning of that process. That we need to be prepared politically, ideologically, and organizationally uh, for that uh, inevitable uh, consequence. Definitely, and we have a caller on the line here, Mo. Tell us what's on your mind. Yes, you know, I'm in this whole discussion. I am mindful of. Emil Cabral, uh, first tell no lies and claim no easy victories. And I think it's kind of germane to the conversation that we're having now, uh, and particularly as uh, we have this discussion about bourgeoisie 
politics, and specifically bourgeoisie politics as it relates to the African-American or, uh, community. And uh, I, I uh, had the pleasure of reading uh, a Putin's speech that he gave a couple of weeks ago, as well as uh, I, I frequently read uh, Prime Minister Xi's speech as well. And, you know, and particularly as it relates to Xi, it, it almost sounds, or you can hear or see and hear a lot of Dr. King in terms of the relationship that a government should have in conjunction with the people, being uh, 98 million people being taken out of abject poverty. So I'm, I'm going to get to my point. My point is that I have the distinct pleasure of talking to someone extremely admirable and consistent when I listen to Ajamu Barak. And, and I'm not just saying that just to kind of gloss over or and, 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 and just add some sugary hosannas. I'm, I'm very frustrated and very frustrated from the quote unquote uh, uh, left because the attacks that are directed to Mr. Baraka are incredibly racist and unfounded. And I think if there's any beauty, we see that, that really the African-American community and particularly those that are, have dedicated ideals to make things better for the masses of people. We are essentially by ourselves. And, and, and it's always, but Putin this or Putin that. When you read Putin's speeches, at least, you know, he's someone that's very erudite and very knowledgeable. You know, he'll mention someone like Pushkin. So um, I, I, I'll just close by saying that, uh, you know, I think probably many people will not hear this on Election Day, but political education, I think, is much more important than just sheer voting for the sense of voting. So I'll stop there. And uh, thanks for taking my call. Thank you, Mo. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next up is Tamara. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm glad that um, Ajamu brought up, uh, I guess, like the role in ideology or the role that fascism plays in the U.S. right now and how, like, the competition between the ruling elites and the Democratic and Republican parties is revealing itself once again. And that leads to my question about how people are un- how people are understanding fascism or how are they not? Because I remember, let's say, like 10 years ago, it seems like this mysterious word, like people hear it, but we have no idea of what it actually is. And so, I'm, so as I hear people learning about it more, many people I hear start with, for example, Mussolini. They say that's the earliest form of fascism. But then when I think about um, neo-colonial thinkers, whether it's like a Nkrumah or even um, Black Panther Party talking about fascism, even in the 60s, um, do you, like, I guess my question is, can we see the process of colonization as also fascistic? or as fascism as we know it today, as we're calling it out here in, in the United States and the U.S., 
did that have a particular start, let's say, around Mussolini, or has it existed prior where we could see that in the colonial process? That's my question. Thank you for taking my call. All right, thanks for calling in, Tamara. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jamu, a good bit there in our callers here. Feel free to respond. First, let me uh, thank Kamal for his, his kind uh, uh, commentary. And, um, and, 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 and to say also, too, that, you know, we have a responsibility to call it as we see it. And to, in fact, to be consistent. And to be consistently uh, opposed to these forces that have, have been responsible for massive suffering of our people and, and collective humanity. We say that this U.S. settler colonial state is an ongoing uh, criminal enterprise. Uh, we see no need to pretend uh, otherwise. Uh, we need to uh, help our people to understand that we're not going to be able to address uh, the, the sufferings of our people, uh, our desire to live in freedom, our desire to, in fact, be a people and to be self-determined uh, until we're able to um, uh, finally uh, and completely uh, doing away with this settler colonial uh, project, this co- uh, colonial uh, capitalist system. And we don't, uh, we don't apologize for our position. I know if elements of, of the left don't understand it or uh, oppose it, then that's, that's all right. We can struggle with them and can even uh, find bases of, of common, uh, common activity uh, to the extent that we can. Uh, but we have a responsibility as African people, as the African working class, to ensure that our interests are, in fact, advanced. And to do that, we have to be independently organized. It doesn't mean that we organize in opposition to any, any other forces. It means that uh, we have to ensure that we can protect our community, we can survive, uh, and that we can advance our politics uh, that would be uh, not only beneficial uh, for us, but for uh, the revolutionary process here in this country. This notion that there's going to be a revolutionary process and African people are not at the center of it, uh, is, is, is really uh, absurd. Um, on the, the, the second uh, uh, question, um, I think it's quite clear that uh, what is going to happen with this, uh, this election, this electoral process, uh, is that the, the struggle for independent power must continue. Uh, that uh, we see with, with what is happening, for example, in Haiti and the way in which uh, the ease in which uh, the uh, ruling elements were able to uh, use uh, the, the trope of crime, uh, in this case in Haiti, uh, to mobilize uh, 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 European opinion to justify another intervention into Haiti, again reflects uh, the need for us to be independently organized and to be able to be in a position to advance a different kind of of interpretation. Um, and there's an element of that question that I can't remember now. Maybe one of you all can, can uh, but I, you know, I have these senior moments sometimes. But <laughs> the point, point I really want to get to it. No, I'm not going to let you get away with saying that you're having a senior moment. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to help you out and say that you're you're having an overworked organizer moment, perhaps, but but never a senior moment, brother. Um, so I think the part of that 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 last question that was 
that was really, I think, uh, a question that that we have asked many times on this show is how how do you think people see fascism in this country to the point where we we don't recognize that, as George Jackson said in 1976, fascism is already here, which is why he said, you know, look, set aside your quarrels, come together, you know, find your love and revolution. And and because we have to fight this thing, you know, Fred Hampton said that nothing is more important than stopping fascism because fascism is going to stop us all. So they weren't talking about some, you know, Hollywood movie, strong man, boogeyman, um, you know, Jack booted thug type of system. They were talking about the fascism that has existed certainly in this settler colonial experiment since its inception and in other iterations around the world. So, I mean, what what is your answer to that question about how you think people in the U.S. Uh, understand fascism and how that plays into, you know, how we engage in particularly the electoral process, um, since that's that's all we feel that that we have at our disposal. A lot of folks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, thank you so much. And that was my the way I was getting at that question of, of the issue of fascism but by leading with what's unfolding in Haiti. Because in Haiti, how can one how how can one Define that situation in terms other than a uh, imposed fascist uh, situation within their country, where you have an unelected government supported by the U.S. state and Western powers uh, who don't uh, recognize the democratic rights of the people, the fundamental human rights of of the population, uh, who are now uh, facing the, the real prospect of a military intervention into their country. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the issue of fascism really depends on who is making those definitions and what what perspective, what angle we are looking at. You know, you have classical fascism that developed in Europe uh, beginning in the 1920s with, with Mussolini and that word. Uh, but as the caller said, what about the issue of colonialism? The social relations we have, we have, we have in in the colonial project. Could that not be, in fact, defined as fascism? Wasn't that the point that was made by W. B. Du Bois and uh, Amir Cesar that talked about fascism or colonial fascism coming to or being brought to Europe by Hitler? So let's 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 talk about that some more. I think, and I know you are going up to a uh, a break, but I think we can get into that a little bit more after the break. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 2 
0252113220. I am here. Jackie Lupman is here. Ajamu Baraka is here. And Ajamu, before we went to the break, you were talking about um, how we conceive of fascism in the United States and how, like so many things, it's something that requires a more sort of sophisticated understanding of it beyond uh, of a kind of uh, a stock uh, and, and often, I think, uh, sometimes shallow uh, conceptions that uh, a lot of us tend to function from. Exactly. I think one 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 thing that people have to have to be reminded of is that when we talk about this word fascism, we are talking about a uh, a process that's connected to a specific system. What is that system? That system is the predominant colonial capitalist system that has that that has that that has manifested itself in various uh, 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 disguises, if you will, or uh, processes. And we had the, the the absolute horror uh, that was imposed on uh, on the indigenous uh, and Africans uh, in the Americas as a consequence of the invasion uh, by the Europeans beginning in 1492, um, and that the relationships that were imposed on people that resulted in the material reality that we refer to today today as Western Europe. That, those processes were fascistic, uh, using today's definitions. Uh, they were systematic horror, uh, brutality uh, imposed on the people. There was no democracy for, for colonized and enslaved people. Uh, there was the, the rule of one specific segment of the population. Today, in uh, this uh, country and in Western Europe, uh, people are concerned about uh, fascism coming uh, to Europe again. But, uh, you know, a, just a cursory uh, examination of European history suggests that the kind of, of social relationships that we, we are talking about uh, um, never left Europe. That, that you, 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 the European empires uh, were, in fact, fascistic, um, all of them. Uh, they allow for some degree of democratic practices to take place in the center while they impose fascistic terror in the periphery, in the colonies. Uh, now that you have the contradictions of the, of the colonial capitalist system now emerging and sharpening in the, in the West, uh, in the northern countries, uh, you find that uh, the ruling class is engaging in the same kinds of, of behaviors uh, policies to, to maintain its dominance that it had in the colonies. And now uh, the working classes and oppressed people uh, in the northern countries are feeling the effects of, of continued uh, capitalist fascist rule. So, you know, we have to connect fascism, not to just behavior, but also to structures, the colonial capitalist structure. And when you do that, then you can look at why people, some, why, why some people like myself uh, suggest that while we are fixated on the, the shenanigans and the, the theatrics of the Donald Trump, the uh, neoliberal fascists that control the U.S. state are tightening their grip on the state and tightening their grip on the population. They're the ones that are responsible for constraining uh, the range of acceptable speech. They're the ones that are defining what is supposed to be the, the orthodox politics of this country. They're the ones that control the state and the economy. So, you know, when we talk about fascism and the, and the threat of fascism, we've got to be able to, to, to 
but to, to, to define that in such a way where we understand it and can explain all of the processes that we see unfolding and impacting our lives today. And I think that understanding is clearly what's key in uh, so much of the American population getting behind this fascist uh, uh, move in Ukraine uh, with, you know, the war against Russia using Ukraine, because honestly, that's really what this is. It is, you know, an exercise of a fascist empire trying to exert uh, more of its influence and control over another part of the world that it wants to, you know, knock off and, and get out of the way as it continues its expansion or attempts to. But I don't think it's going to turn out the way that uh, this empire is planning for it to Ajamu. And I think your description of what fascism is, how it is central to Uh, So many different systems, but it is absolutely central to capitalism and the United States capitalism in particular. It puts things like, you know, Biden's approval rating slipping down to 39 percent in a new kind of light, because even if people don't understand that Biden is the head of a fascist empire, people do understand that. This this government is not taking care of them. Right. At the same time, this government is also sending billions of dollars up to what is it now, Sean? Seventy six billion dollars to Ukraine since February alone. I mean, so people I, I think it is it has been. I believe that has been the key to people not understanding and being so gullible, Ajamu, in accepting the narrative, you know, that there are no Nazis, there are no neo-Nazis in in Ukraine. Those people are fine. Those those are not swastikas and uh, black sun insignia and, and those kinds of things. They don't mean what you think they mean in Ukraine because we still have this cartoon character depiction of what fascism or this Hollywood depiction of what fascism is. And we don't recognize that we are actually living in like quite literally the belly of the biggest fascistic empire on the planet today. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and but, you know, we have to break this, this stuff down in such a way where it's really, it's really understandable because the, the, the propaganda machine has been so effective in defining what they call fascism uh, in such a way that's only applied to the activities and policies of of the Republicans uh, and the Democrats are are, are, are fashioned as the, the innocent parties and defenders of democracy, human rights, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you know, is, is it the Democrats who are representing the interests of the neoliberal uh, right uh, that is strengthening the state, uh, creating the conditions for the, the normalization of, of, of totalitarian rule by, by capital? They are preparing the the the, the table uh, for the the the, the fascistic, uh, more overly fascistic politics that are emerging in in the United States of America. And right now, the only opposition that's uh, developing uh, to that is actually coming from the the the, the, the more traditional, if you will, uh, right, represented by some of the elements in in the Republican Party. 
Uh, so the politics here around the, this, this media of fascism and what are the primary threats uh, to, to, to the working class uh, are so bizarre now that, that uh, it's, it's quite understandable that people are, in fact, confused. Um, and, you know, we see how they are mobilizing the issue of race, how they're mobilizing uh, and redefining uh, white supremacy uh, to mean uh, the activities and the uh, behaviors of the Republicans, uh, like people like uh, Joe Biden uh, uh, and Barack Obama, uh, that are upholding uh, white power and, and European uh, interests. Uh, they get up, and Zelensky, who is the most uh, uh, prominent of the white supremacists, they get a pass. Uh, so the confusion is is quite uh, is quite pronounced, and it's going to take a lot for us to 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 get through this. You know, and to help people to begin to understand or look at things in a slightly uh, different way. But we have to, because as long as we have this kind of confusion, it plays right into the hands uh, of the of neoliberal right. Uh, that is quite clear that they're going to uh, maintain the hegemony in the U.S. and globally, or they're going to take the entire uh, planet down uh, down with them. Yeah, and you know, Ajamu, we're we're living in a moment. That uh, increasingly, as time goes on, seems like it, frankly, uh, gets uh, scarier and scarier. And I feel like there are a lot of people who take a look at everything that is happening and get a real sense of fear because they uh, are aware at some level of all the different dangers and contradictions that we've been laying out today and, and, and perhaps more but don't feel like they have the ability to do anything about it other than cast a vote at the ballot box. And they may not feel uh, great about even doing that, considering the assault on that uh, basic democratic right. You know what I mean? I think oftentimes voting, I think a lot of people kind of see voting as uh, almost like a, like, like a last ditch effort. It's like the one thing that they could possibly do to stave off uh, the worst case scenario. But I think this is why it's so important for uh, uh, organizers and movement people to be active in this moment, that that when we see these different dynamics unfolding and we see these contradictions within the ruling class and uh, the fact that it stands to just, I mean, waylay our class uh, uh, more so than it already has. And so I just think it's important that. We help people understand that, you know, there is something that you can do. You don't just have to sit around and despair about the fate of the world. You can be active in an effort to change it. And I know for me, that's what keeps my optimism high. That's what keeps my morale high to know that I'm not in this alone and that I'm a part of a force that doesn't just exist, that isn't just talking, but is fighting. Not just around uh, uh, the issues of this moment, but for a new world altogether. And so, uh, as ever, that movement building piece, I think, is going to be crucially uh, uh, important as we move forward, as uh, uh, we're going to need to build a vehicle for our class to not only struggle around these particular issues, but ultimately to take power in this society. Exactly. And we have to, we have to advance that vision. We have to, people have to understand that part of, of the way in which the ruling class is able to sustain itself is to is to uh, inculcate this sense of of, of helplessness 
of 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 the of individuals not not uh, feeling like they can't make any kind of changes to their lives, of individuals beginning or uh, feeling like uh, their plight is 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 their plight and nobody else uh, experiences what they experience, and that it's their own contradictions that, that explain why they're catching hell. Well. We've got to show people that, that, you know, the individual has to be connected to the collective, and the collective can, in fact, make changes. And the changes that we can make transcend the present way in which society is organized, that we can build something new and better. We can have real social relationships that enhance our our human capacity. That we don't have to have uh, a productive relationship in which uh, some one segment of the population exploits and oppresses another segment of the population. We can be more than what we are today, and that message has to be said over and over again. But we've got to be able to understand that it's up to us to make those kinds of changes. And in fact, we can make them. Just look around the world, and you can see people involved in making profound changes for themselves. And that's the mission. That's the vision we have to advance as revolutionaries. Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? And, you know, I'm really thinking, Sean, about this fantastic book that I am reading called Socialist Reconstruction. Familiar with it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, j- just a little bit, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, a new book. People may have heard me uh, mention it a couple of times here on the show. Uh, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. And uh, the reason, I mean, I think a book like this is uh, frankly important and quite useful in a moment like this because it dares to ask the question, what would a a socialist United States look like? What does this country look like if poor working and oppressed people actually have power? And the interesting thing uh, uh, about that is, you know, if we take a look at pop culture, popular media, you know, um, you know, all these uh, dystopian uh, uh, sorts of pieces that we see. And you see that people literally have an easier time visualizing the end of the world than they do seeing a, a, a world that is not governed by capitalism. So that's how deep and profound uh, anti-communist propaganda is and has been in the United States of America. I mean, I contend that uh, anti-communism is almost uh, an unofficial religion in this country. But with each passing day, it becomes increasingly clear that the capitalist system itself is the core contradiction. No matter what issue we talk about, there's a reason why we always find ourselves back at capitalism as the culprit for suffering in this country and around the world. And so there's no getting around the fact that as we build this movement, we're ultimately going to have to address ourselves about how to overturn that system that's been affecting us for all this time, for centuries, really, and talk about how do we recreate this society in our image and likeness. Workers make the world run. Therefore, workers should run the world. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank Jamu Baraka so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.